but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan, and I'm James. That was a very vigorous hello. It's been a while. <laughs> we're a little bit eager to get back into the swing of things. Yeah, we're back to regularly scheduled tennis programming. No more mailbags for the moment. Uh, so much has happened. I mean, there's the tennis that's happened, but then news, new news. Zverev Djokovic. They've brought a whole swell of new stuff to talk about in the last week or so. Mm-hmm. We've got a new number one. We've got a default, a major fine, and possible looming suspension. We've got lies, lies, and <laughs> lies on top of lies. <laughs> PR stunting. Uh-huh. Uh, before we get into that, you have here under title idea, Take Flight. Now, I want to know, what do you think immediately came to my mind? The theme music to Queen Sugar, okay, obviously. Good. We did not talk about this before <laughs> because immediately... That's what came to my mind, yeah. and I wanted to know. It was inspired by Felix. You know, FAA, Federal Aviation something. Authority? Author- what, I, you know, yeah, whatever. whatever the last A is. Dreams never die. Take flight <laughs> as the world turns. That is one of the best musical themes for any current TV show. Keep the colors in the line. Take flight. <laughs> <laughs> More singing on the body serve. It is my act of rebellion subversion within our relationship because you tell me constantly how tone deaf and terrible a singer i am oh because i'm so oppressive to your artistic visions stifled i am taking fantasies myself i am Mm -hmm. taking flight i guess we talk about some of the more current stuff the more recent stuff and then work back to the results that happened a couple weeks ago yeah the ATP has a new number one in Daniil Medvedev. He's the first non-Big Four player to reach number one since 2004. He's broken Novak Djokovic's current streak of 86 consecutive weeks at number one and 361 weeks total, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. It's reopened this Pandora's box of what exactly constitutes the big four if there is a big four or if it just stops as a as a big three mm-hmm. and who is that fourth person i didn't realize this was up for debate for me like it's incredibly disrespectful to andy mori to say that stan Wawrinka is more deserving of that fourth spot than andy mori given the totality of their careers right there's been a lot of andy murray erasure over the past few years there's you know you hear mostly about the big three now i think on on tennis twitter at least I mean, I don't think we need to get all into it, but with Andy Murray's weeks at number one, with his Olympic medal, his... Medals. Right. His uh, many titles at Masters 1000 events, beating the other members of the Big Four in their prime when Andy was young. I mean, he has just a really long and consistent career up until 2016. The volume of slam finals as well. Yes, I have no issue if people want to be very rigid about it just being a big three. That's fine. Those numbers, 21, 2020, can't argue with that. But, you know, let's just be a little bit 
respectful. And no, there's there's definitely a distinction. Yes. Right. Be, between number three and number four, whoever number three is. But if you're going to add someone into uh, that upper echelon, it's obviously Andy. Mm. It looked for a while that perhaps this battle for number one could drag out for a few weeks. It could take some time. But lo and behold, with Djokovic losing in Dubai, Medvedev, by default, was handed the keys to the penthouse. Yeah, so Djokovic did return to the tour this week in Dubai at the 500 event there, wins two matches, reaches the quarterfinals, and for many, they felt like, okay, Acapulco is a much stronger draw. More of the top 10 is there in Mexico. It's closer to the U.S. Players are warming up for Indian Wells-type conditions. This should be a cakewalk for Novak. And as usual, sports makes uh, fools of us all. Mm Mm-hmm. I think we take for granted what a lot of these goats have done coming back from long layoffs, what Federer did in 2017, what Rafa is doing this year, what Serena has done in the past, for them to just show up and show out without having a lot of practice, a lot of matches under their belt. And this is a totally reasonable result to have happened yeah. to Novak in, in Dubai. And although I don't feel sympathy for him, he has had an emotionally trying past month or so. The preparation for him is very unusual. Flying to Australia and having to not play, not get the type of you know nutrition and conditioning that he likes, this is all very disruptive for someone who takes such great pains in his preparation. So it's not totally surprising that he would lose early. And it's not like Yuri Vesely... Uh, had kind of a fluky win. He also beat Chilich this week. He beat RBA, who just won a title on hard courts. Dennis. He's beaten Novak before. He's no 2 right. against Novak. He had also come through qualifying, so he had a lot of matches under his belt with a fair bit of momentum at this tournament. Yeah. And I think also, and we'll get into this a bit later when we talk about the BBC interview, Djokovic, I think, is feeling a little bit sore at his fellow players as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he really feels kind of the lack of support for what he was dealing with in Australia by his peers. There, I mean, you could count on one hand the number of players who kind of spoke publicly and took his side. Okay. But what was missing for me in that BBC interview when he touched on that was any kind of acknowledgement of what perhaps his role as president of the PTPA played in that perceived icy reception Mm. from the players that would be an interesting question and i don't know i don't know the answer but i would like to kind of hear him take a stab at it but i think he's somebody who even if he feels that the general public kind of prefers some of his colleagues to him he likes being liked by fellow players or that it's just a matter of fact that that's been the case. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think we need to project that he likes to be liked by his players. <laughs> it's just what has been okay throughout his career. His player, his contemporaries seem to like him. Yes. Back to Acapulco, Medvedev gets to projected number one because that's not going to happen officially until Monday. But he finds out that that's going to happen ahead of his match against Rafael Nadal last night a rematch of the Australian Open final, and Bob's your uncle, 
if you had any idea how this was going to go. Mm -hmm. It was a an opportunity for Daniil to flip the script, get a second win against Rafa, uh, maybe take some of the hurt and pain off that last loss. And Medvedev should probably have an advantage in best of three. But Rafa came in with a very clear game plan. He uh, surprised a lot of us by even coming to Acapulco. He, in my view, is intoxicated by his recent run of success. And if he's feeling healthy, he likes to have a pretty full schedule. That's just how he's always been. I'm just sitting here mortified what? by everything that just came out of your mouth. Everything? <laughs> this idea of why is Nadal in Acapulco? Like, I need folks to get a grip. Like, he is a professional tennis player. Sure. It's a normal thing for him to play in this spot of the calendar. Right, but leading into the Australian Open, his health was a question mark. Uh -huh. He went through that incredibly grueling final. Uh huh. And I personally was surprised to see him enter Acapulco. He's had, what, at least three weeks off since then? He has pocketed a presumably enormous appearance fee to show up. Yes. He has, um, I believe, Rafa Nadal Academy businesses or business in... On, he does, on the east coast of Mexico. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I just don't, I just don't understand the intense scrutiny over this decision. Like, if Rafa is healthy, he's going to play. You know, like, the... the which the is patterns. what I which is what I said. He likes to play a full schedule because he's generally more successful when he gets matches. Mm -hmm. But the the health is always a question mark. The foot, right? This was something he said before January that he considered ending his career over. That he considered that perhaps his career might end because or of it. be forced to end. Uh -huh. Yeah. I guess I'm lumping you into the, the swell of criticism over this decision. Now, I, I understand all of the good reasons for him to go. Uh, mainly, probably number one is that he likes it. And he likes to play. And the fans of Mexico love him. What I didn't get is there was so much um, panic over his draw. And to me, it was like, okay, this is, this is a very difficult draw. But this is, he's 35 years old. And this is Acapulco. Like, this isn't a Grand Slam. I, who cares? It's, be, it's you know? best of three. Yes, there's humanity, but, like, there's only so long those matches will go. Right. <laughs> you know? And, like, okay, if he loses to a top 10 player in Acapulco, so what? Uh, I mean... And in the back of my mind, didn't we just go through as Rafa fan collectives? There was this great discussion last year at some point. Well, you know... If, as a Rafa fan, you were able to see him achieve one more big thing, what would it be? Would it be a second Australian Open? Uh -huh. Would it be a third Wimbledon? Would it be this? Would it be that? And for a lot of folks, myself included, it was a second Australian Open. And it happened. And it so, seemed very unlikely right? at one point. <laughs> it happened. And so everything else is, it's gravy. I know. I mean, that's what we say. But fans, once things start turning in the good direction, we get greedy again. You know, we forget that this is all bonus. So anyway, this is mostly moot because he's played well in Acapulco. A, a big obstacle potentially in his draw was defaulted. Mm. Zverev. He beat 
one of the top hardcore players in the world, Medvedev, your new number one, and now he's in the final. A lot of people who were potential obstacles just fell away in yeah. rapid time, which right. is, again, why we don't do predictions on this show, because typically the toughest draws become the cakewalks in no time. Very often they do. And the first three rounds of this tournament for Rafa wasn't that taxing. There were a couple bagels in there. Mm -hmm. But he then gets the toughest ask in this rematch with Medvedev. And he comes through with flying colors. Untested in the first set. Up a break in the second. And Medvedev starts clawing back. Clawing back. There were back-to-back service games in the middle of that second set where Nadal saved in one, four break points, and then in the subsequent, seven break points. Daniel had no break opportunities in the first set, and then things start to get dicey in the second. Mm -hmm. That second service hold was 20 minutes long, seven break chances, didn't convert any of them, and Rafa was making errors and then would follow them up with blazing winners or unreturnables, They were both hitting the most absurd drop shots. This matchup is fun to watch. It is. Frankly. Yeah. Yeah. The the tactical nature of this matchup is is unique. You know, it was very humid and the court is kind of slow. And there were a lot of points that looked like clay court points. The drop shots were out in force on both sides of the court. And for a lot of the match, the drop shot favored Rafa. But the 6-3, 6-3 scoreline. Uh, you know, it felt a lot tighter than that. The match lasted two hours. Nadal will play Cam Nori in the final. What this dude has done in the last, how many months are in here? 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> what he's done in the last 12 months is, uh, I mean, people have glow-ups, but how many people saw this glow-up? Indian Wells yeah. champ last year, coming into 2022 with the weight of having to defend those points to stay at the top of the men's game to be able to get into any tournament he wants. He's already won a tournament this year and now he's in a final in Acapulco and then heading to defend his title in Indian Wells in a what, week and a half? Yeah, Nori is coming in on a win streak after winning Delray Beach. Rafa's coming in on a 14 match win streak, which is the best he's ever started a year. Mm-hmm. I will say this, happy for that man, Cam Nori. But his game is one of the most hideous for me in all of tennis. <laughs> I don't... And you know what? That's irrelevant. It is. It's absolutely irrelevant. But, like, I grimace every time I see that straight-armed backhand. <laughs> <laughs> it's giving Jimmy Connors, but on, you know, with the wrong hand. If Rafa is to win this match tonight, we'd be done recording before that match happens. If he wins, that's 15 straight matches one to open 2022 three consecutive titles to start the year every last single one of them on what was that a hard court (laughs) yes i i get what you're poking at here but are there still serious people who are making clips about clay court specialists like there can't be any actual serious analysts or commentators who are saying stuff like that Mm mm-hmm Fair, I take that point, but I still don't think he gets enough credit for his prowess on hard courts. Hmm. And a lot of that had to do with the 
the injuries over the last few years and his inability to really survive the hardcourt summer. Right. After the French Open and the clay swing. But he's won the Rogers Cup a couple times in the last couple mm-hmm. years. And do you remember when Ben Rothenberg would trot out that stat of all <laughs> of Rafa's record in hard courts on hard courts in the last few years? Yes. Remember how yes. that was a recurring thing? And it was like, well, injured, retired, injured, this, that, broken foot, toe, head top, foot bottom. <laughs> and, but in between those were wins. Yeah. He's turned that around quite a bit recently. And also he was winning, he won Indian Wells in Canada very early in his career. Mm-hmm. He was quite young. But the narrative was that those days were done. Yes. That Rafa's yes. hardcore success was a thing of the past. And that is so clearly no longer the case. It's always and will continue to be a matter of will his body allow him to do the things that he's still capable of doing. We are in unprecedented times, or I should say maybe unforeseen or unthinkable times as Rafa fans for what he's doing. Yeah, and really as, as observers of men's tennis in general, this is just not at all how the year was supposed to start Mm -mm. and i understand that rafa has been pushing back against this narrative that's followed him throughout his entire career that because of the way he plays the game because of his style because of his energy levels that he puts into his play that he was not going to have a long career Mm -hmm. right and he's 35 years old now but i would implore the listeners and the ones who are rafa fans Everybody has their haters, fine. If you don't like Rafa, that's fine too, <laughs> you know? But if you are interested in his continued success, really and truly, this is the time to just savor it and enjoy it. Because 35 years old, yes, he's proven people wrong, but there probably isn't a whole lot further to go. Right. This this can all end mm-hmm. for anyone. It can end at any moment. It almost ended for him, even if he's granted great health in the next little while he probably has like maybe two two to three years tops left you know so like enjoy it is that yes, what you're saying that's what i'm saying enjoy not trying it. to sound too negative right no i'm saying this is great <laughs> this is a gift enjoy seize, it seize the day yeah take flight <laughs> <laughs> now acapulco is fun and so many of the tournaments that are held in Mexico are simply fun. Like uh, Guadalajara last year, Acapulco this year, they've done a great job on just putting together events that the fans seem to enjoy. And therefore, they're a pleasure to watch. In less fun news from Acapulco, mm. uh, that guy, Alexander Zverev, had a, just an outrageous incident in a doubles match. He was playing with his friend Marcelo Melo. And as you all know, uh, by now, he was defaulted from the tournament after this outburst. On the first day of the tournament, I was watching him... Well, that's a lie. I was looking at the scores in the app, and I saw that he was playing, and I just got overcome by this rage. Mm-hmm. And I read the, the thread. I would, I would characterize it as rage. And mm. annoyance... That <laughs> nothing has been addressed with this, really. You know, that 
things are just carrying on as usual. And I don't know if that was some kind of premonition moment for what was to come, but the very next day in doubles, he loses his blob. Yeah, yeah. So there That's was a Billy Elliot quote. Mm-hmm. Late in the match, what it was, eight six in the tiebreak. There was a call that he disputed. He thought his opponent's ball went wide. It wasn't called. He absolutely lost his mind. Called the umpire a fucking idiot. Was screaming at him for a little while. The F-bombs. They were just all over the place. They were targeted. He stomped across that court. Still cussing up a storm. So the match ended one point later. And... Alexander goes up to the chair and whacks it a few times with his racket, forcing the umpire to actually move his feet out of the way. Goes up to the umpire's chair. Yes. And then he walks back to his chair, and Mello is just kind of standing there doing nothing. Uh, And then Alexander goes back to the umpire's chair again and hits it again. So a total of four times. And the whole while, he's also, like, screaming profanities at the umpire and staring down the umpire so there's a a lot of physical intimidation going on here we i mean when plishkova did this a few years ago we talked about it a lot Mm -hmm. right this this was the lumberjacking we roasted her (laughs) a lot it took a couple years for her for us to even have any kind of in the vicinity of a rooting interest for plishkova Uh, yes and we no longer really refer to her as lumberjack Uh, Or the incident as the lumberjacking. Right. This was a similar but highly escalated version of the lumberjacking. Because the, I mean, it felt like uncontrolled rage. Mm -hmm. Right? It was very, uh, it was directed at the umpire. It was not only a few whackings of the chair. His racket was destroyed. The umpire had to move his body out of the way possibly avoid being hit and the wildest the weirdest thing to me is that after it's done alexander gives his broken racket to a fan and then proceeds to sign autographs for quite a while as if this were a totally normal end of match situation Mm -hmm. i mean what is going through your head at that point there there were so many things that stood out about this moment for me, I watched that and I saw I saw Marcelo Mello react in a way that told me that this was not a new thing for him to witness. That's what I took from it. We know that they've been friends for a long time. We were in Cincinnati where Marcelo Mello interrupted uh, Zverev's press conference and they did this whole yeah, they, thing. They thought it was cute. <laughs> and- for the other people in the room just trying uh, to do their jobs. It was... More to the point, this made me think about just how many men in his life and men on the ATP have witnessed things like this and said, or done. Yeah, and don't say anything. nothing. Yeah. John Wertheim even called out Mello on Twitter, not by name, but said, you know, the 38-year-old partner basically should should assess his close association with this team. Uh, I was surprised because that was pretty forceful. And, you know, Melo's reaction was a big nothing sandwich. I, w- I just expected like a doubles partner and friend to sort of try to pull him back because 
oh, we know what happened, but you don't in the moment you don't know what he's about to do. How do you, you allow him like, to go back to the chair? Yeah, that that was weird to me. And I mean, it's not Mello's fault. Like, no. Alex is a grown man and he has control and responsibility for his actions. I'm not blaming Mello for this. Uh, it was just, it was a whole weird situation. The um, extension of it, though, too, is that his behavior is his being Zverev has been unchecked. That's another thing that, that I took away from it. He, mm. he really felt he could, he can get away with pretty much anything he can do whatever he wants without consequence and what really gets me to that place is the fact that this man is being investigated by the atp tour for allegations that were made against him that he abused his ex-girlfriend that is currently happening so if you've been accused of being violent in private the the fact that you would be violent in public like this is alarming and i don't i am personally not comfortable making that connection like making the correlation that if you do this then you're guilty i'm absolutely not saying that because i'm personally just very uncomfortable with it like i I don't know enough about abuse to make that conclusion but to reach i'm just saying like why if if you've been accused or, or people think you did something like this why would you act like this in public you know he has no impulse control Right, clearly. And he also feels like he can get away with, with anything, pretty much, mm. right? Those, that's the combination of the two. We need to reiterate here that we believe Olya Sharapova. Yes. <laughs> Point blank period. Not because of what happened on this court in Acapulco. Right. I like how Steve Tigner framed this incident uh, on Tennis.com. He wrote about some kind of a series of escalating incidents among players versus umpires. So he referenced Shapovalov's You Guys Are All Corrupt, mm-hmm. Medvedev's outbursts at umpires at the Australian Open. And he, you know, he made the point clearly that this is the worst of the bunch, where this is the most serious, but they're not isolated incidents. There's there's kind of been this precedent set that you can talk crazy to an umpire and in some cases intimidate them, call them names. And the the penalties will be either non-existent or minor enough that you don't really feel it. You know, if it's a fine, you can afford the fine. And it made me think tennis is extremely permissive in the way that it allows players to interact with officials compared to a, a game like basketball, like in the NBA. If you argue with a ref for just a little bit too long, you'll get a technical. Like people are getting technicals out here for anything in the NFL. Taunting is a relatively new offense, I believe. You know, flags are thrown for very minor incidents. Whereas in tennis, it's like you can get away with quite a lot in such a supposedly upper crust buttoned up sport. The fallout from this incident has been pretty swift. Within a couple hours, Zverev was kicked out of the tournament. This happened in his doubles match. They lost. And then a couple hours later, he was kicked out of singles in Acapulco. He had to forfeit his prize money, he was fined $40,000, and he had to forfeit the ranking points that he had earned as well. And then the ATP claims that there will be further review. What that may mean is that a suspension could be forthcoming, or it might not, or we could see something like what happened with Nick Kyrgios a couple years ago where 
he's given what is it, a suspended basically a, a suspended suspension or yeah. a provisional suspension for time served it's like time served it's you know if you do something crazy again over these next six months or whatever you're going to be in big trouble and the same a similar thing happened to fabio fonini as well mm-hmm. what's crazy to me about this whole incident is that djokovic in australia took the entirety of the wind out of the sails, out of the investigation and public discourse surrounding Zverev. That was a non-issue in Australia. Mm-hmm. It was a gift. It was a gift. Because people stopped talking about it. In a similar way that the, the Tsitsipas bathroom breaks, you know, overshadowed the same discussion during the US Open. The Peng Shui situation as well helped make this kind of go away for Zverev. I imagine the ATP was very pleased with this. I imagine they were equally, or if not doubly displeased, that this incident has now brought this Zverev issue squarely back into the public's consciousness and put heat on the ATP, so much so that they've finally issued some kind of update on what's going on with their investigation. They claim that it's ongoing, that they have contracted some third party to aid with the investigation. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say that they've completely outsourced it, but they've gotten some help. Oh. And that it's ongoing. Okay, because back in October, they said it had already begun. Right. They're saying that it's been going on, but we've now gotten some more help. As to whether you believe them, That's another matter. Okay, fine. But for those of us who don't have insider knowledge into what's happening within the ATP, you'd be forgiven for thinking uh, this thing wasn't going forward very swiftly. And if he was a good boy and he behaved and didn't draw attention to himself, that this whole thing might not amount to much. And then he goes and Mm. does something like this publicly. And so now the Washington Post ran a story today lumping him in with people like Phil Mickelson for issuing stupid apologies for stupid behaviors. So now people in America actually know who he is. You know, and tennis players who are not American are not famous in the U.S. He's been on TMZ. Like, he is his own worst enemy. Everybody and their mother and their dead granny in tennis were doing the most and their (laughs) best. Please, you, you really have to preface that. That that's um, Jamaican humor. Okay. Uh, before you start talking about people's dead grannies, uh, everybody in tennis had been and were continuing to do their best to prop up, to help this dude, to sweep this stuff under the rug, to celebrate his vast, incredible on-court achievements. One of which is not beating a top ten player in a Grand Slam to date, and still he could not get out of his own way to do his part. To make this go away. The mentality of that, I cannot understand. (laughs) I think even looking at this incident in isolation, this is a doubles match. First of all, was Mm. it worth it? Right. Was it worth it, really? The the minor monetary uh, penalty, you've been fined the maximum $40,000. You lost your prize money. You lost your points from this tournament in both singles and doubles. Okay. But you, you might be suspended further was it worth it over a doubles match 
uh, your first doubles match of the tournament? Really? But also, like, this is not an isolated incident in this sport. This kind of behavior has been kind of tolerated. And I don't know what umpires can do because this is an individual sport. If you follow the code religiously and you default a player, there's no match, right? Uh, the fans hate you. The tournament might be really pissed off. The ATP might be mad. Like, this is different from ejecting one player from an NBA game. You're ending a match, you know, if an offense is egregious enough. It's just, it's part of the sport, but it's also this history of just allowing and celebrating some really crazy behavior. They've got to go. This happens. You cuss a blue streak at the umpire like that, you go, it's done. End of argument. The first five mm -hmm. people to have that happen to, it doesn't happen anymore, or very sporadically. Mm -hmm. The point is, it, it has not been dealt with or addressed. And so the escalation has happened. And to your point, it is wild that he acted like this in a doubles match. You are right. the world number three. This is not a Grand Slam final. No disrespect to doubles. Like, we, we champion doubles on this show. But for but him, you are not a doubles player. But this is just fun for him. Yeah. Right? Like, he's not trying to reach number one in doubles. Like, anyway. So, meanwhile, on the other side of the world, Leander Pace was just found guilty of, quote, various acts of domestic violence against his partner. I had no idea this was even going on. I did not either. Yeah. I did know that there were lots of murmurs about whether or not this dude was a good dude. Mm. And why Over the years. certain former players, former doubles partners don't get along with him mm -hmm. anymore and all that. So yeah, that sucks too. One last bit of info before we wrap Acapulco. John Millman had to retire during his match because he inadvertently hit himself in the eye with a tennis ball. Uh, what the hell is going on in Acapulco? <laughs> yeah, that was unfortunate. You mentioned previously that we'd be getting into the Djokovic interview on BBC. Now's your time. No, Take flight. My time? Take flight. Well, let's start by saying what a strange situation this is where the current number one player, soon to be number two, is, I mean, he's back on tour, but he's going to be in and out, playing where he can because of vaccination requirements, border restrictions. It is just, uh, it's... Kind of ridiculous from a bird's eye view. Let me just say that. Okay. Now, say more. Continue. <laughs> now, the BBC interview, Novak kind of teased this a few weeks before saying he's, you know, my version of events. is because It's going to come out. I'm going to be able to tell my story about what happened in Australia. So we get this BBC interview. Before you continue, I just want to ask you one question. Did we learn one new thing? Um... I don't know. I'm I think your question is facetious, but I'm taking it seriously. I don't I'm not sure. Okay. But it is the first time we've heard him speak at length about what happened. But to tease it in a way so as to give the public the impression that what you think happened didn't go down that way, that's not what I got from watching this interview. Right. There were not a lot of misconceptions dispelled in my view. This was very clearly an interview set up by uh, an elite athlete's PR firm. They probably had some influence on which type of questions were asked. And if not, 
which type of questions went to air. There are still some pretty big holes in the story. We are still waiting to hear about the inconsistencies about when the positive result was received. Did you know when you went to this event with all these children? He says no, but a journalist needs to probe those things. And so maybe that journalist did, and it it just wasn't sent to air. Maybe that question was uh, not allowed to be asked or was uh, heavily hinted not to probe too hard there. But what you got is, in my mind, an interviewer asking questions that appeared to be tough but elicited really easy explanations from Novak. Only because there were no follow-ups. Yeah. It was asking a question that could be taken to be tough but given the responses, the regurgitations that we expect, there were no follow-ups, really. I am willing to give Novak the benefit of the doubt that this wasn't controlled on his side as to what went to air because like, there was nothing new that he mm. offered that changed the narrative. Like, If you felt a certain way about what went down, nothing about what he said moved the needle in any way. For me, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, from a comms perspective, I don't know if it was successful. If you're a fan, you probably thought it was great. If you're skeptical about his version of events, you probably thought it was a failure. So, <laughs> it wasn't particularly enlightening to me. Novak has always done this thing rhetorically where I feel he speaks to his audience as if they know much, much less than him. And this is not a comment on his character, so let's not go there. But when you say, you know, there were so many misconceptions about what went on, and then you don't dispel any of those misconceptions, that kind of falls flat. You know, you say, people say I'm an anti-vaxxer. But you, okay, and? You've provided no evidence that you're not. I personally don't really care if you are or not, but you are spreading anti-vax misinformation all over the place. So what is the material difference? You had Nigel Farage at your family's house. If you were so concerned with the way that people were talking about you, maybe you your family shouldn't do stuff like that. You say you didn't want to interfere with the judicial proceedings while you were in Australia, and that precluded you from making any statement allowing folks to form their own assumptions. There were some things that you could have said. You could have said simply, I am not anti-vax. I mean, you made statements on your Instagram, on whatever, like stuff was said, stuff could have been said. This was not all done to you. See, that was the the takeaway for me from this, is that it came off like he was telling us that in a sense... He felt he was the victim, that all this happened to him in a vacuum, and he had no control over it. And, you know, it is important to remember that Tennis Australia and various levels of government in Australia bear responsibility for what happened here. Mm -hmm. You can talk about degrees, but Tennis Australia has yet to answer for that. They have yet to explain why they believed an exemption on the state level had an impact on federal immigration law. And really, Tennis Australia is the body that lured him to the country. However, when Djokovic says several times that I am prepared, I was prepared, first of all, 
to stay home from Australia, and I am prepared to sacrifice titles and statistics because I do not want the vaccine. Okay, but you still came to Australia. You came to Australia, all that happened, and then you proceeded to have this long, drawn-out public court affair. Right, because if it was, well, I feel this strongly, I'm just going to go home. So why didn't you go home? You know, if playing in Australia was less important to you than the principle of controlling what you put in your body and having control over the medical information you share with the world, those are both your prerogative, right? That That is your right. I just feel like there's a bit of dissonance here. You also don't get to sit there and say that assumptions were made about you with respect to your stance on vaccines when you toyed with the media for months about what your vaccination status was and whether or not you would be playing in Australia. If you were so determined to stand in your truth and not play Australia, then you could have made that known on multiple occasions over many months heading into the situation. He created this firestorm of speculation that allowed people to, as far as he's concerned, make assumptions about him. It's not just that he didn't say anything about what he was thinking and feeling and his beliefs in Australia once he got there. He didn't say it in the many times that he had the opportunity to say it or dispel things in the months leading up to this. And he took a tongue-in-cheek approach Mm -hmm. to it the entire time. So miss me with this I'm being put upon approach that he's taking now. Yeah, like listening to the interview was just like, well, if you knew that people were filling in the blanks, right? People were developing opinions about you. Like you've had, I don't know, why didn't you just dispel those a long time ago? Like you had, you have a huge platform. You have many opportunities to do so. When you say in the months leading up to Australia, oh, we will see. We will see. I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. You're leaving room for people to go and speculate about whether that COVID positive test is real or not in December. That is something materially that he did that contributed to that. If we are to Mm. take it at face value and, and take his word for it that that in fact did happen, right? The other thing, this BBC interview, it was poor because so many facts were allowed to be spun in a certain way to benefit Djokovic and allowed to remain then on that record as being facts when they were, in truth, false. Yeah. (laughs) It shows (laughs) a great level of unpreparedness or complicity. On the, on the part of the interviewer? On the or? part of the interviewer and the BBC. Specifically with this idea that Djokovic was granted this medical exemption that was legally standing, allowing him to get into the country. I mean, there were some falsehoods on the legal side, or at least misunderstandings, and, and some obviously on the medical science side. The BBC did publish a counterpoint alongside the interview by a medical doctor uh, essentially asking what more information do you need, mm-hmm. you know, about the vaccine or whatever. The BBC was accused of essentially running 
anti-vax propaganda that entire day as part of the promotion of this Djokovic interview because on social media and through writing headlines, they left a lot of statements, essentially misinformation, uncontested. And let me tell you, pay your web editors and digital producers well and hire journalists to do these jobs because it is really not an easy job. You know, it's not an easy job to craft headlines that actually upholds the same standards that you put into the journalism itself. And that that might be a sidebar, but the BBC, in my mind, fell down on the job because it may not have been their intention to to highlight misinformation, but they did. So in the words of Randy Jackson, it's a no for me, dog, with this interview. <laughs> <laughs> like, it did not give what he thought it would give. And now he's not going to be able to play the Sunshine Double Swing. He'll be MIA from the tour in March, for the most part. Who knows what government entry requirements will be Yeah, come it, April, you know, May, June. A lot of countries may start liberalizing their requirements throughout the year. We may see more of him. Uh, and I don't know, maybe that makes it easier to make the sacrifice now assuming that things might change but he you know Novak is a highly principled guy as flawed as that can be let's move on to greener pastures who, who is green Felix Oje oh, yes won his first ATP title after what nine tries his ninth final mm-hmm. this was you know he really got a monkey off his back here it was beginning to be a little bit worrying fans you know, we knew that eventually he would get there, but I'm sure it felt like an incredible weight off. And to me, it feels like this is a new phase of his career going forward. Especially after playing Medvedev so hard in Australia, taking him to five sets, to then follow that up immediately with this first title run, and then to get to the final again the next week. He had made this back-to-back finals the same stretch a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. In the Rotterdam-Marseille double and lost both finals. He did it again this year, winning the first leg in Rotterdam and then losing the next one to Rublev. Yeah. And it was not an easy opponent in the final. Tsitsipas has had a winning streak against Felix. Felix was able to upend that trend. And, you know, it was just a pretty dominant performance in that final, especially on serve. Felix lost only seven points on serve in that entire match. It was a 6-4, 6-2 victory. I I mean, I didn't really know what to expect going into the final, especially with their kind of recent history against each other. And Tsitsipas, for his part, he's, you know, fresh off a surgery in the offseason. He's had mixed results, right? He's had some really good results, reaching the final here, reaching a few semis. And then he's also had some puzzling losses. Again, it's important to remember that Felix is still only 21 years old. He's now made 10 ATP finals at 21 years old. That's a lot of finals for that age. And the trajectory at Grand Slams has been really good Mm -hmm. over the past year. It was just that, you know, that bugaboo, that that losing in finals all the time. When is he going to flip the script? And I think this will be really, really important to his career over the next year or so. Maybe. Maybe. Sure, maybe. And... Selfishly, it's one of the few, like, really feel-good stories in men's tennis. 
Mm-hmm. I, Felix is fun to root for, right? Yeah. Not only like he's Canadian, so it's cool to have a Canadian champ that we can get behind, but typically I'm not super like jingoistic uh, about it. I mean, I'm not even Canadian actually, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't usually choose players that way. Um, but you know, I've wanted to stand for Felix for so long and I have, but this just feels like uh, a reward. Mm-hmm. There's this two-edged sword thing. Double-edged, yeah. Yeah, I guess that works better. More precise. That's that's what it's called. (laughs) With the way Felix is talked about and viewed. I know you wanted to maybe leave this for another episode, but you've just reignited it in my mind. Where, on the one hand, we have so many poorly behaved and awful people on the ATP tour, frankly. And Felix has presented himself to date as squarely unproblematic. And so there is that going for him. But there is also something that we always need to be mindful of when we talk about black people and in tennis here specifically, there's a, a an element of respectability politics in the way people like Felix and the way they talk about him, about him being good for the game that they would never really talk about in the same way a white person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and so why you know why is he good for the game why yeah. is he important when we were so quick and by we i mean the collective y'all <laughs> why are y'all so quick to decry the behaviors of say curious at the start of his career curious has squarely dug his own bed laid made his own bed dug yes. his own grave at it, this point yes So that's not really an apt comparison. But the way we talk about other black players and the the strict adherence to a certain type of code of behavior for us to be able to stand them. You know, like there's an element of that with Felix that I'm always kind of trying to keep an eye on and keep it at a distance. Because it holds, as much as we think he's great for the game, you A, hold him to a standard that other people, his counterparts, do not get Mm -hmm. held to. It's kind of like the articulate trap. Yes. You know, white people need to be very careful about not using a word like that to describe black people. We know this, but we, meaning me and other white folks, also should be wary of uh, (laughs) celebrating only a certain type of of black athlete Mm -hmm. right that said love felix (laughs) you know that's not going to (laughs) change it could you cannot swear for any of these men you cannot (laughs) what have you learned over seven plus years of doing this podcast that is never swear for any man that should be the title of this episode yeah you know you know how joe broke my heart when he made the hormones comments i mean yes (laughs) Mm -hmm. didn't deter you though from being a stan well it truth t we you banned him from the show for a different reason, mm-hmm. and I endured it. Yeah. Didn't fight too hard. He deserved but, it. Yeah. Speaking of someone who deserves a a quick ban. I thought you were going to say a quick bang. No. <laughs> Very much no. Who deserves a quick ban? Well, you wrote on the agenda the, the George W. Bush Redemption Open. Ooh. Dallas. See, this is, this is what happens, right? The U.S. has seen an exodus of tournaments. The U.S. Mm-hmm. has lost a ton of tournaments over the past 10, 20 years. And then when you 
host tournaments in the U.S., shit like this happens. When you host and, it in Dallas. <laughs> and you get champions like Isner and Opelka and Sock and, okay, great. Like, those are our men's tennis players, but um, I, what what is it doing for us? Yeah, so we got to see a, a championship weekend of fawning over really, W. Like really, fawning. The failed, disgraced former president of the United States, George W. Bush, I do want to take you back to 2007. What was the world like when George W. Bush left office? Did we feel good about him? Donald Rumsfeld, of all people, resigned from his administration, lost badly in the midterms in 06. The presidency was a fucking disaster. And the only thing that saved George W. Bush was that Donald Trump was impolite. That's it, right? George W. Bush should be in prison. He is a war criminal. But this this is American politics, right? Any any piece of shit can be polished. And this is what happens with presidents. Someday Donald Trump may be, you know, will laugh at him, but it won't be seen as a a disgusting, shameful existential episode. threat. Right. George I I mean I this is one of my pet topics off the podcast, mm-hmm. like the rehabilitation of this person, this evil, despicable person. So I hope you know I wrote this in such a way so as to give you your time yeah, to get but, this off your chest. But the fact that this man is not behind bars and instead he's patting Riley Opelka's head is viscerally disturbing to me. This was added to the agenda a while back. And subsequent to this, current world events have escalated where Russia has invaded Ukraine and that has had direct ramifications for some of the players on both tours for russian players ukrainian players for belarusian players anybody who is friends of these players anybody who lives in the general vicinity of those countries in ways that we don't know and we may not know Mm -hmm. but thinking about what's going on now with this george w bush redemption open bullshit that happened Just last night, I was thinking, what would have happened if any of the American players wrote No War Please in 2002 on uh, on court camera the way Andrei Rublev did as a Russian after winning Mm -hmm. his match the other night? Because in in a sense, my initial reaction was, what what does this do? What materially does this do? It it felt, I I was tempted to think it was an empty gesture. And then I was like, no, you dumb bitch. <laughs> to yourself. <laughs> to myself. <Yeah. laughs> like, are you stupid? Mm-hmm. Like, this is actually so powerful. Mm-hmm. And, because, and courageous. Yes, because we've, we've just seen what it's like as a Chinese tennis player to speak out against your authoritarian regime. And then to not have the wherewithal to be like, well, what was Lindsay Davenport writing on cameras in 2002? Not to single her out. Right. You know what I mean? Like, this is an act of courage. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember the chill that sort of went through the U.S. up to and including the invasion of Baghdad. You know, and there was this wave of, you know, it felt like you really couldn't be free to speak your mind. And we were still in this post 9-11 arch conservative phase and patriotism and all that. But that's really nothing compared to what Russian players are dealing with now. And what, you know, Ukrainian players are worried about themselves and their families. Yastremska 
was posting on Instagram today. She and her sister have left Ukraine and gone to France. Leaving her parents behind. Right. Stakovsky is talking about trying to get back into Ukraine and joining the army to fight. You know, I don't have a lot of wisdom to share about this. I just uh, remind myself and everybody like this. These are things that most of us can't really understand. And for, you know, a Russian player to speak out and say anything is an act of courage. And and I don't I don't really expect I don't expect players to make some grand gesture. No, because they you know, if somebody doesn't, that doesn't mean we make conclusions about them. We've been asked in the past about why some of the Belarusian players haven't said anything about Lukashenko. And And quite frankly, I don't know. I don't know. And is it safe? Yeah, that that has been the bottom line. And we're seeing that play out with Pong and then now in Russia and Ukraine. There are things that we can take for granted as easy with professional athletes in these kinds of situations. And they often are not. And if we don't know or can't stand in their shoes, then we should set it out, Mm -hmm. frankly. But we should also take this as an opportunity to show grace to players. We talk all the time about how the tennis between the lines does not exist within a vacuum and that not only is the world outside tennis influencing what's going on on the court, but there's a reflexive relationship between the two. There can be no greater example of this than what's going on now. Like if you see Elena Svitolina struggling in a match, it's not just about tennis, you know? So we need to keep that in mind and just let people be for the time being. We know that you all, the majority of you, come to us because of our slant towards women's tennis or bias toward covering women's tennis more so than men's tennis. Regrettably, this has not been the case on this episode. We are aware of this, but you can thank the world's numbers soon to be two and current number three for that. <laughs> now let's talk about Aliona Ostapenko. Mm-hmm. What? Wow. <laughs> this woman is just unpredictable in so many ways. An enigma. She really is. She is back. Uh, she has beaten in Dubai last week four Grand Slam champions en route to that title, starting with Kenin, Sviantek, Kvitova, and then Halep in a rematch of their 2017 final. And then she beat two more this week. <laughs> For good measure, beat Krejcikova in Muguruza in Doha. It's also the way she's been doing it. You watch those highlights of all her winners against Muguruza, and you would think that Ostapenko was playing a 12-year-old. Okay. It's absolutely... That that Muguruza match especially, she made her look like an amateur. I mean, made her look slow. She made the serve look like it was coming in at a cute 32 miles an hour. (laughs) (laughs) The number, the volume of return winners unreturnables. I mean, that video didn't even show you the unreturnables. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. were just clean winners. There were like 39 of them in a clean two-set victory. And I don't know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that, but I sure as hell do not want to find no, out. Never. Because really, what do you do? Like, what could Garbina have done in this situation with her game? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, with, with her tools, what could she have done to stop that? I do think that Garbina has over the years, added more topspin to her game and has left her vul- vulnerable to these kinds of assaults 
from these blazing players, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier in her career, Garbina hit the ball more flat, I think. Maybe I'm mistaken oh. in this, but I think she hit the ball more flat. She subsequently added more topspin, and now who we thought of as a power player, you're often watching her play, and you're like, what is going on? Like, mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. is she not able to hit through these people? Well, she's added some margin, mm-hmm. right? Yes. But maybe at the uh, at the expense of pure domination mm-hmm. occasionally. <laughs> you know, if the game is clicking, she can or previously could just blast people off court. Yeah, and so when somebody like Ostapenko is just hell-bent on not allowing you to get into any rallies, this is the result. And it, I mean, it creates just stunning highlight reels. Uh-huh. right like the the return of serve the especially the backhand but these kind of curling short angle forehands that remind me so much of vintage serena williams like nobody's getting these she had been on the come up for a while now she had much improved results in 2021 and now she's on the cusp of returning to the top 10 for the first time since 2018 Ostapenko was eventually stopped by Kontavate this week in Doha. Yeah. But had she won the title, she would have been back in the top 10. So it, it seems almost inevitable that we'll see her there again. You cannot swear anything oh, well, of course. with Ostapenko. You cannot. This was a rematch versus Kontavate. They had played in St. Petersburg as well in the semis, and Kontavate won that one as well. She's now 4-1 and one against Ostapenko. They both came into this match in Doha on incredible runs, right? Ostapenko was on a nine-match win streak, her career best. Kondavate was also on a win streak, having just won St. Petersburg. But Annette just lost to Iga Sriantek in the final of Doha in a pretty overwhelming fashion. You think? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Iga, she can do this, right? She can. Uh, if she does not allow her second serve to be a vulnerability in a match, she served and won 80% of her first serve points in this match. 6-2-6 mm-hmm. six, six, love. Iga wins the biggest hardcourt title of her career, the Doha 1000 event. Her fourth, only her fourth title overall, and second on hardcourts. She's still only 20. Four sure, titles. But it, you know, it feels like, like she's been close to the top of the game for a long time, right? And her titles are pretty big ones yes we've come to an impasse we're we're, we are in agreement <laughs> okay yes there, there's no more discussion to be had <laughs> but look at this tournament in doha i think we are at a point where we could see more quote-unquote stability at the top of the women's game because the top 10 now reflects who the best players are in the women's game i think for a long time during the pandemic, it didn't. And so we yeah. got to situations where deep in big tournaments, it was like, well, who's that? Who's that? What? Huh? And of course, there are always people hatching and snatching on the WTA tour. But these folks have hatched, they have snatched, and they are persisting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the ideal state is some hatching and snatching, but a general level of stability in those, you know, the second week mm-hmm. of slams, the quarterfinals of tournaments... You'd like to see some of the same names repeat themselves. Because one of the pitfalls of hatching and snatching is that it's kind of coming out of nowhere almost. Mm-hmm. And then there's an adjustment period. And sometimes it takes a while and, before you're able to mm-hmm. sustainably snatch 
all the time. <laughs> and if it happens too young, right? right? Maybe you haven't built you. Maybe you don't have the team around you. Maybe right. you don't have the experience to become a week in week out great player. So now we have folks who have gone through that down period and who have worked on stuff, figured it out, and they are there. And I think the ideal, like you said, situation is where you have this equilibrium across the top of the game, but still leave a few cracks here or there where somebody could come through and snatch Mm -hmm. every once in a while. But if you are to come and snatch, you have to beat the best, right? Yeah, yeah. But so where we are now with this tournament in Doha, we had nine of the final 16 players in this draw ranked 1 through 13. Well, Barty isn't there. I'm saying the top 13 ranked players in the world, nine of them made the round of 16 at this tournament. Mm, Okay. So that led to crackerjack matchups at the back end of this tournament. Uh, look at the quarterfinals. There's there is nobody outside of the top fifteen seeds in the quarters. We had Sabalenka, Shriantek, Goff, Sakari, Jabour, Kontavate, Muguruza, Ostapenko. Sabalenka, who won a match with zero double faults. Mm-hmm. So you know Sabalenka, the world number two, Shriantek goes without saying. Like this is a list of the players who have excelled over the past year. And have really earned their ranking. And so you're getting matchups that are better than Grand Slams. Because they're, you know, they're forced to play top players earlier. And you're missing, you're still missing people like Barty, Osaka, recent slam runner-up Danielle Collins. Like there is such a wealth in the WTA. But it's exciting to me to see in February a quarterfinalist, a quarterfinals that is so stacked like this. The depth on the WTA Tour. I know we we groan on and drone on about this, but I'm just looking through the rankings here, and it's just, it's a minefield. Mm-hmm. It's like playing Minesweeper without any tactical... <laughs> is there a strategy to that game, by the way? There's if an, there is, I don't know it. There's a proximity to strategy, but no um, definitive way to okay to secure safety from destruction Mm -hmm. okay which might be a good way to describe the wta tour right now (laughs) (laughs) so ego wins the 1000 up to number four in the rankings as of next week you mentioned that sabalenka was the number two player in the world the number one seed at this tournament she will fall to number three because barbora krejcikova is going to be your new number world number two come monday Mm -hmm. and you can't say she didn't earn it Annette Contivate is making her top five debut at number five. Maria Sakari. There have been a lot of... I know, of... this is like your pet project. Uh, it's my making, pet project? Making the case for Maria because she gets a lot of trolling online. She went, made what, like eight semifinals yes, last I know. year? Your favorite she continues... <laughs> Listen, she continues to make deep runs. I understand she hasn't won these tournaments. And I she just that. she just made the final in St. Petersburg. Right. Against Contivate. Finals in St. Petersburg, losing to Contivate, and then losing again in the semifinals in Doha. Her number seven ranking come next week. It's kind of depressed, I think. You think so? Yeah. But the, I mean Who there, has been more consistent? But there are so many other players winning titles. And like we've just said. 
how many different players have been successful. There's only so much wealth to go around. Kuda Mertova, a runner-up to Ostapenko in Dubai. She won doubles with Mertens against Ostapenko and Kitchenok at the same tournament. She was the runner-up in doubles to Goff and Pagula, a new doubles team. But Coco Goff has seen a lot of success in doubles. Mm-hmm. And I've said this many times, but to me, this is a good example of a player who's building a career for longevity. Coco. Why? Because, you know, I think her success has come gradually after that, what, that must have been 2019 Wimbledon, where she had some big wins. She beat Venus and, you know, she was a headliner for a while. And there was immense pressure on her to repeat that. She didn't immediately, you know, go a step further and start to reach semis and finals and and explode in the way that some other players around her age have, or a little bit older, like Emma Raducanu. Like, her success has been so gradual. She's learning to play on tour week in and week out and absorb the losses and move on. Like, she had a great clay season last year. Is she a Grand Slam champ? No. And that's fine. And that's possibly even a good thing. You know, she was a runner-up in doubles at the U.S. Open last year. I just, I think the trajectory of her career is is encouraging, and it's, you know, for years on this show, we've almost, like, had this impulse to protect her from the very worst that tennis does to its youngsters. It's more not wanting to participate in it. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like, you know, she's got a good head on her shoulders. She's here for the long haul. She's not even 18 yet. And right. even if she goes another two years without having a big win, that's fine. Mm-hmm. She'll still be 20. She'll be Iga Shriantek's age now in two years. Right, right. And you don't see her like beating herself up on court, right? It's not, I don't know how she feels, but from my perspective, it's like, oh, Coco didn't win this tournament. It's not a failure. No, I think she's completely disgusted with some of her losses. <laughs> Sure, and that's good. That's some, fine. You know, yeah. in some ways is healthy, but yeah. it's like not ruining her life. What else has been happening on the WTA tour? There have been decidedly fewer tournaments on the there WTA has. than the ATP. Yeah, so I think that's the big story, right? Is that since the Australian Open, there's only been, I believe, four WTA tournaments versus uh, like over a dozen ATP tournaments all over the world. And this is... This is a problem, and this is not to cast blame, but it is a problem. With the Chinese tournaments absent from the calendar at the end of this year, there are far fewer opportunities for WTA players to make money and earn points, period. Okay, and say, so if, say more. You know, if you're outside of the top 50 or you're not qualifying for big-time tournaments like Dubai or Doha, what are you doing in February? Right, February might be a total wash. And we don't even really know what the reason is for that specifically at this time of the year. No, no, I don't know why. But, I mean, the numbers are very clear, right? There's there's just far fewer opportunities for WTA players right now. I feel like that's always been the case, but the discrepancy has been exacerbated. Yeah. At the end of the Australian Open last year, there were uh, tournaments in Australia after the Australian Open for you know, players made the uh, the effort to get down there in a really challenging time. So there were more opportunities. Uh, but this month, 
you know, there have been opportunities if you're a player who can qualify for St. Petersburg, Doha, and Dubai. But if you're not, like, where are you playing outside of challengers and ITF? Mm -hmm. If I were to hazard a guess, I would think that if there is a scarcity of resources, a patriarchally run world (laughs) historically privileges men's sport over women's. And so Mm -hmm. those resources will be allotted accordingly. I can't speak specifically with certainty that that's what's happened, but that is my guess. And sure, like, um, throw some outrage, I guess, at the WTA. There must be some culpability there, but they don't run the tournaments exclusively. You know, like, you have to have... Yeah, they don't own the tournaments. No, you have have to have people wanting to operate these tournaments and sponsor them, so... I, I don't know. It's something to keep an eye on going forward. We are also still in the middle of a pandemic. So that must be the overarching influence. And then you deal with the, all the, the sub fuckeries that come <laughs> below that, you know? Right. I'm just saying with, you know, the ATP is digging in with China, mm-hmm. right? Like they're very clear that those tournaments are going to go on. Oh, yeah. They've already with released the, the WTA end- removing a lot from their calendar toward the back end of the year. Like this is clearly a very challenging time mm-hmm. for the organization. I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess my point is like trying to balance the not necessarily outrage, but disappointment in the paucity on the schedule with an understanding of, like you said, just how difficult these times uh, are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that does it. Yes, I think so too. We're back in the swing of things. Indian Wells is coming up very soon, followed closely by Miami. We are keeping an eye on, like, tournaments. I've even started to look at maybe some flights. Oh, really? But again, it... Who are you going with? I don't know. You have a busted (laughs) back, so... (laughs) Um, Again, dependent on changes to be made to entry requirements to get back into Canada. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not trying to go somewhere and be stuck there for like two weeks waiting to get a negative test to come back if for some reason I test positive while I'm there. Mm. As of right now, Canada federally has changed the re-entry, the re-entry requirement from needing a PCR test to just getting a rapid antigen test, but one that must still be taken within 24 hours of departure back into Canada, mm-hmm. which still does not quell or fully quiet my concerns okay. in those in that regard. So we do hope that if not one of us, both of us will see you on tour sometime soon. Sometime in 2022. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's move beyond soon and be a little bit more broad. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Find everything related to the body serve at linktree.com slash the body serve. Thank you to everybody who understood the assignment and wrote back and contacted us with luminescent and mellifluous. <laughs> there will be no code words at the end of this episode. The responses but... were voluminous. Mm-hmm. Is that the code word no. for this week? No. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>